benedictions this morning because of the baptisms and the reception of new members, I'd ask you to turn to 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. This is one of my favorite texts on the church. And I'd like us to spend a few minutes thinking about it this morning as we have new people joining this church and as Roy confesses his faith publicly and is baptized. Uh, Now I'm going to read the context, the verses surrounding the verses I really want us to look at, verses 14 and 15, so that you get a feel for the flow of the text as we get into the statement about the church that we'll study. So let's start with verse 1. This is the word of God and it is eternally true. Now, 1 Timothy is what's called a pastoral epistle. Uh, The word pastor is really the word shepherd. So here we have uh, one of the letters that's written to shepherds of God's flock, which is what the church is called. It's another one of the metaphors that's used. We'll return to that this morning later and see how Jesus used that metaphor, the the flock and the shepherd. And in the middle of this, uh, Paul is getting very specific to Timothy, who was a very young pastor, You can have young men who are shepherds of the flock. And he begins to give specific instructions as to what sort of men Timothy and the other elders are to select as elders, as overseers, as as presbyters. And he says this in 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires, in other words, uh, looks forward to and desires, the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach in the snare of the devil." Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And now the verses that we will be studying this morning. I am writing these things, these things we have just finished reading, to you, says Paul, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So it's particularly this final section of verse 15 that we will be studying. 
the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. This is God's word and it is eternally true. Now the church is here called the household of God or God's household. And when we look at scripture, we see that this word is used in a whole bunch of different ways. In Matthew 10.6, it's used to refer to a nation, and it is the nation of Israel. There we read, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This is our Lord's command. It's used to refer not just to the entire nation, but to tribes within the nation. In Luke 1.33, it says, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. It's used to refer to a physical house or home. The Samaritan woman who asked Jesus to heal her daughter from demon possession, we read that Jesus' response in Mark 7.30, it says, going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed, the demon having left. And so this refers to the physical place that she and her child lived. It's used to refer also to God's temple. In Luke 11.51, our Lord, in this uh, tremendously hard uh, condemnation that he gives, he says this, he says, From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the house of God. Yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. So he is here referring to the temple when he speaks of this house of God. Often, the people of God are referred to as the new temple or the new house of the Holy Spirit by Paul. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, he says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God, and there we have this word house in Greek, oikos, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And so it's the word for house made into a verb, this is where the Spirit of God lives. This is His house in us. In 1 Corinthians six nineteen, do you not know that your temple is a temple? Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. And then in 2 Corinthians six sixteen, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God says, said, I will what? I will dwell. And that's the same root of the word house that we've been reading. I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So here we see that both the people of God together and the individuals are referred to as God's household, the church of the living God. This word is also used to refer to God's dwelling in heaven where all believers are going to live for eternity. Jesus says in John 14, 2, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. It's used to refer to families, not only those family members who are still living and and dwelling in the same location with us, but it's used to refer to uh, the family's descendants for generations to come. In Psalm 127, 1, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It's used to refer to those who are bound together in one faith. In Galatians 6, 10, 
we are told, so then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. And then it says, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. It's used to refer to the people who together make up one home under the authority of one man who is the head of that home. In Acts 16, you remember, we have the account of Paul and Silas in the jail in Philippi. And then you remember that everything is turned upside down. The jailer is about to commit suicide. When Paul cries out with a loud voice saying, Don't harm yourself, we're all here. He called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he, the jailer, fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your what? You and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house, and he took them that very hour of the night, washed their wounds, and immediately was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house, set food before them, and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. And so here you see the ancient world notion of the pater familia, the father of the house. And so anybody speaking about the relatives and the servants and everybody in that house would just simply say his household. And again, this is the same root word. It's also used, this word house, to refer to those who belong to God. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle and the temple were called God's house. Uh, in Psalm 23, 6, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And then Psalm 26, 8, O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. And here we can see again the, the sense of God is the father of the, of the home, the one who, it's, it's his potter familiar, it's his dwelling place, and all the people who belong to him are in that home. And although the Old Testament did not speak simply in a material way about God's temple, we can say, we can see that in a number of places. Uh, in Psalm 27:4, we read house in the Old Testament, the house of God used in a spiritual way, where we read, One thing I have asked from the Lord, that shall I seek, that I may dwell, what? In the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in His temple. The man who honors God dwells in God's house, but it's not simply the physical location. It's dwelling in the presence of God and in the favor of God. In Psalm 91, a prayer of Moses, the man of God, Lord, you have been our what? Dwelling place in all generations. In Ezekiel 11:16, therefore say, thus says the Lord God, though I had removed them far away among the nations and though I had scattered them among the countries, yet I was a sanctuary for them a little while in the countries where they had gone. Now in the New Testament, even though there is a spiritual aspect to this language of the house of God in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, there is a growing emphasis on the spiritual reality of the house of God, on it turning from a place to a people and to the work of the Holy Spirit uniting those people. It's not predominantly of a person, but of people. Now, I'm, I'm emphasizing that because I'm trying to get at a chronic error made by American Christians 
where we think that everything is our individual relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, we all know that Jesus said to Nicodemus, the Jewish religious leader, when he came to him at night, he said, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so all of us are very aware of the call of God to us individually to believe in Jesus Christ. But we also need to recognize that all through the Bible, we don't see God dealing just with a whole bunch of individuals. We see God dealing with nations, with kingdoms, with households, with cities. You know, think of Jonah being sent to Nineveh. And it makes comments not about this individual and that individual, but about the whole city repenting. And so we need to wean ourselves away from thinking that the personal relationship with Jesus Christ is absolutely required and the church is an elective. The personal relationship with Jesus Christ, being born again, is core curriculum, but whether or not we are united with other Christians, whether or not we are using our gifts among those Christians, whether or not we are publicly identified as a part, an organic part of those Christians, well, that's something that you make as a choice. Some towns have good churches. Some towns don't. And if I happen to be in a town that's larger than 20,000, I'll probably find a good church. But if I have to move and teach school in a town of 1,500, well, I'm not sure that I will be able to fulfill this aspect of the New Testament. And it doesn't matter. It's voluntary. You know, the whole issue of the church is gnarly. Uh, it seems like the church is where I always suffer. The church is the place where I always get disappointed. I never get disappointed in myself. And of course, that's hilarious, you know. We think about our own lives and we think, my goodness, if I can opt out of my marriage when I'm disappointed with my wife, does that start the wedding night or does it wait until the honeymoon morning? Now be honest, those of you that are married, and tell me, how long was it until you were disappointed in your wife or your husband? I'll bet for some of you it was when you were standing up in front and taking your vows. His breath was bad. <laughs> now, I don't want to trivialize the degree to which we're disappointed in one another, but how often I hear every week people saying that they have given up on the church because they're just not willing to be heard anymore. And I think, well, you know, that's how America approaches marriage too. That's why we have so many divorces. We say, well, you know, this didn't work. It used to be that nobody would ever have the audacity to say that they were divorced because it didn't work. <laughs> but now we don't think anything about it. You know, we say, well, you know, just we weren't compatible, you know. And you think, you know, what was that vow about, for better, for worse, sickness and in health, uh, till death, us do part. Rich and poor. Okay. So what I'm trying to say is, if we all realize that marriage is a firmer connection than till, till, till the death of love do us part, till the death of compatibility do us part, that marriage is a lifelong bond, and that even though many of us have failed in, in that bond, we have failed, nevertheless, we're not going to say that, that marriage is no longer a lifelong union. We're going to say, you know, I know what God's plan is, and I am going to fail 
aimed at that plan, not aimed at something that is just what I would prefer, you know? So now, if, if you're willing to think God's thoughts about marriage, till death us do part, would you think God's thoughts about the church? The church is not an option. It's not just uh, on a Sunday morning a bunch of individuals showing up, sitting in the pews, and then going home. Do you understand that? It's the household of God. Now, it might be that some of you have never experienced a healthy household. And so, what do we do? Well, if it's the issue of the fatherhood of God, we just forget the language. You know, some of you haven't had good fathers, so you can call God creator and redeemer and sustainer. You know, because it's too painful for you to admit the failures in your own father. All right? But no, we don't do that. We say, no, God is the Father from whom all fatherhood gets its name. And the path to your healing is for you to look at God in His perfect fatherhood and see how your own father failed and embrace the language of fatherhood, not because your father introduces you to it, but rather because you look at God and it becomes clear. Well, now, if that's true of the language of Father God, how much more true is it also of the language of his household? You know, you've grown up in an abusive household. You've grown up in a household where you, your mother and dad were divorced two, three times. You know, it was, it was nasty. Uh, you had an older brother who oppressed you and beat up on you all the time. Uh, and maybe worse. You know, and you say, well, you know, I can't, I can't really relate to this language of household when it comes to spiritual things. It's, it's defective for me because of my background. We go, no. America thinks that all that matters anymore is our choice. You know, God's dispensations don't matter. Just our choice. That's the only thing that's ultimate. And so, for instance, now bear with me, you know, we take the whole concept of sexuality and immediately everybody goes, oh, sexuality, you know, are you talking about physical intimacy? No, I'm not talking about physical intimacy. That's late in the game, way down there. I'm talking about sexuality. I'm talking about what you were in the womb before any thought of a woman or a man came into your brain. You were sexual. In other words, you were marked by sexual differentiation. And again, when it comes to sexuality, all we like to talk about is roles that we choose. And we refer to it as gender, you know, something you can take on and off depending on how you feel about it. And, you know, what, what role do you believe in? And, and, and how do you work out your sexuality? It's all a matter of choice, you see. Okay? Because why? Because choice is the idol of our culture. A, T, and T, the right choice. Okay? And so it makes us all feel big about ourselves. Do you understand this? You know, I have choices, you know. I can major in uh, ancient Mediterranean history, or I can major in computer science, or I can, I, can, I can sing like a lark, or I can play piano, or, you know, the world is in front of me. Seize your destiny, you know. Seize the day, seize the moment. Make the choice. Be all you can be, you know. Okay, here's what God says to you. God says to you, Male and female, he created them. And then he gives you the meaning of your masculinity and femininity. He says that he is the father from whom all fatherhood gets its name. And he says, pray like this, our father who art in heaven. <laughs> okay? He says that when you believe that you are added to his household, and then he tells you how to live in this household. None of these are choices. Do you understand this? 
This isn't something that you can like option into, you know. Uh, you can't sell it short. You know, this is God's decree. And God, we don't mess with. He is God, as my mother said to me recently, and we are not. All right? Okay? So, He has given you the gift of the church. Many people in history have not had the privilege of uniting with any other Christians. Think of the Ethiopian eunuch. Where was he sent? You know, you have this precious thing. And it's not an option. You do have the option of which precious thing in town to choose. But you must choose a precious thing in town. And then the question is, all right, what kind of precious thing should you choose? Okay? Your choice isn't whether or not to organically unite with the church. It is the household of God. When you believed in Jesus Christ, you were added to the household. That's it. But then you do have the choice as to which manifestation of the household to be a part of. Now, I want you to think. I want you to think about what, I, what it means to become a part of a household. All right? And I would like you to think about a puppy dog named Spot. All right? Spot sits in the pet store at the mall. And Spot wants a home. Okay, And Spot sits in his little cage and occasionally catches the eye of some little child and they have a love affair for about three minutes and then the reality of the mother or dad comes in and the child goes and Spot's left without a home. Now let's say that one of these children comes along and is able to get the father to agree to have a dog in the house that messes everything up. All right. <laughs> All right. And so Spot comes out of the cage and is purchased and does what? Well, really, the truth is Spot doesn't have a name yet, does he? If he's a puppy, right? And so what's the first thing that happens? He's brought into the home and he's given what? He's given a name. The first thing that happens, he's named. His name is Spot, right? And this is his home. Not all places. If his home is all places... He's like an alley cat. Now, Spot's brought into a home, a specific home, and that home names. Now, what about you as a Christian? You are called Christian. And the Bible tells us that when Jesus returns, you will have what written on your forehead? The name. Okay? And you're already named. You yourself name yourself when you say the creed with all Christians all through history, you name yourself, all right? Spot's given a name. And when we read in Scripture, and we see what Scripture says about this issue of name, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to what? Adoption. As sons, through Jesus Christ, to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will. And then in Revelation 22.4, we see that we are a part of the family because it says they will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. 
And then in 1 Peter 4.16, it says, If anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. So we get a name. 1 Peter 2.10, You were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So here's our identity. Now, what's the second thing that happens? Well, when I once was weak enough to get a dog, and some of you have heard the hilarious story of me getting a dog. It's, it's a world-class story, I guarantee you. Uh, what I did before my family knew that we had gotten this dog is I brought him home, and I, thinking dog thoughts, thought, well, what he needs is food and water. So I got the little, whatever you call them, those things that you buy that have food and water in them, and I... I put it in the front hallway and I proceeded to feed this dog. And Jesus says to the people who believed in him, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And then they, the disciples, said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. And Jesus says in Luke 22 in the upper room, when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And we all know that in the Lord's prayer, we pray, give us this day our daily bread. In other words, the sustenance for our souls and for our bodies comes down from God. It doesn't come from our mother or our dad. It doesn't come from the food service people at the dorm. But it's given to us by God. And when we come to the Lord's table, we are eating and drinking and being fed by God. And when we go into the dorm, He is the one. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above, falling down on us from the Father of the heavenly lights. So we get a name, we get food, and then we get protection. Do you remember our Lord saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him, because they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, what's the significance of this for our study of the household, the church this morning. Well, the sheepfold is God's household, the church, and it's protected by the chief shepherd Jesus and the under-shepherds, the pastors and elders that God has called to care for his sheep. And what we see in this text is that Jesus was a good shepherd, and then we see all through the epistles, Jesus and the Holy Spirit setting aside certain men for the office of shepherd, filling in for Christ, who is at the right hand of his Father interceding for us, all right? It is his good pleasure to use sinful men. We got done baptizing Roy this morning. I said to him, I said, now, Roy, Christians are going to fail you. 
Christian leaders are going to fail you. But God is pleased to use Christian leaders in our lives to protect us. Now, how does that work? They fail us, and they're to protect us. That's how God's pleased to work. And we see in Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. And then finally, love. We've got a name, we've got food, we've got protection, we've got love. And you think about the affection that that dog was shown in our home. As soon as everybody got home and saw that I bought a dog, everybody cuddles up on the floor and loves, loves up the dog. Okay? Uh, and it's a no-brainer. It's what happens when a baby's born. It's what happens when a husband and wife marry each other. They cuddle up and love. All right? Again, do you even have hope for this from the church? It's what you see all through the epistles, the whole New Testament. All these books are written in the context of a name, okay, food, protection, love. This is what a home's supposed to be. Yes, you didn't have it in your home, but it is in the church. Do you hope for this? Do you have the expectation that the church is the household of faith? Or have you given up? You say, well, I've been hurt. Well, I've seen terrible things. I say, ding dong. What else is new? Did you think it was just a a hypothetical construct when it said that we have this treasure in jars of clay? This is who we are. But God is pleased to glorify himself through broken human beings. And so I just want to encourage you this morning. When the Bible talks about the church of the living God being the household of faith, The Bible knows nothing of those who spurn this household. The Bible knows nothing of those who, as a woman was saying to me this week, make a conscious decision to go to a church where they will be anonymous so that they don't have to be hurt anymore. Okay? That's sin. You make a conscious choice to be a part of a household where no one knows your name, no one will ever bother feeding you except in mass. All right? It's like, you know, the feedlots out in Nebraska. Okay? Nobody will ever protect you, come to you personally and say, Brother, sister, I see such and such. Have you thought about this? Are you sure? And nobody will ever love you because they don't know your name. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that very large churches can't be faithful in those four things. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is if you make a choice to be a part of a church where you will not be known so that you can't be disappointed and where you will not be personally fed, personally disciplined and protected, personally named and personally loved, then what you're really doing is saying you will not be a person who has faith in the household of faith. You will not be a part of the church of the living God. There's nothing anonymous about the church, the household of faith. So that's the sermon for this morning. And I really ask you to meditate on it and think about it. Would you please? Would you think about the household language of Scripture? Would you think about the person, the personal aspect of all the letters of the New Testament? Would you think about that? How much of the New Testament we have? If in the New Testament times everybody was anonymous, you know, Philippians, I plead with you, Doe and Sintiki, you know, Demas, you know, 
You know, think of the names. You know, all right, I should stop saying you know, you know. Beloved, 1 John 4, 7 and 8, let us love one another for love is from God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God for God is love. Jesus said a new commandment I give to you. That you, what? That you file past each other in the parking lot, right? That you love one another even as I have loved you. That you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, I'm going to do something a little bit different this morning. Sarah is there. Uh, But what I want us to do is just sing that little ditty. Sarah, and you don't have to accompany us because we all know it. And you know this is the ditty I'm talking about?